for your message last week and for covering, even though I believe there weren't a great number of you here last week. Everyone must have gone to the Dixie Chicks, you know. Okay, let's open up in prayer as we uh, continue to look at God's Word. Heavenly Father, uh, it is a real privilege to be able to call upon you as our Father, to call upon the Creator of every single thing that exists, the one who is all-powerful, yet who also humbled himself to enter into our world, into our struggle, in order to pay the price, the consequences for our sin, that we might be restored in relationship to you. As we look at the events surrounding uh, Jesus' death and resurrection, as we look up to Easter, we are reminded of the very core things of what you have done to make salvation possible. Lord, may we be filled with a sense of awe at the magnitude of what you have done, not only what you have done, but also what you have saved us from and what we have inherited as a result of of, of your grace shown to us. Uh, So, Lord, um, Jesus claimed that he came to bear witness to the truth and we pray that uh, your truth is revealed in your word might sanctify us this morning, both in a sense that it might uh, identify us and set us apart, but that we might be transformed in our character and our response to you and to one another. Um, so teach us by your spirit, but most of all, change us to become more like Jesus. We ask in his name. Amen. Now I've got a little confession. I'm not good at taking tablets. So if you can rule out any theory of me potentially becoming a drug addict if it involves taking tablets, because I'm no good at it. Oh, apart from other reasons I wouldn't want to. Even at age 20, I was going to say like 21 years ago to make it sound like I was a little kid, just in case you thought I was younger. But at age 20, I'd put my mum's car underneath the semi-trailer and I was there in hospital as an adult and they give me this little cap with little tablets in it. Put them in, can't swallow them. Can you break them up for me, please? Nurse was not particularly impressed to have a grown adult force her to break up the little tablets and I think they mixed in some jam or something like that. But eventually I got them down. I can proudly say 21 years later I've graduated beyond that, Uh, but if they're big I'm still a bit not so good at it. But one time I remember at a family holiday... I can't remember if one of the two boys, myself and my brother, if one of us had worms or both had worms or if it was just a precaution, but mum had decided we're going to have worm tablets. And I distinctively remember, I don't remember where it was, sitting at the dining table doing everything I could to give the impression that I had taken these tablets, either by pretending to swallow it, piffing it in the bin, hiding it under the table, presuming I actually did need the tablet, I was actually throwing away the very thing that I might have needed. It's not a new concept. That happens everywhere. It happens everywhere today. It happens everywhere in the, in the first century. When the thing that people needed most, the saving grace of Jesus Christ, yet people rejected the very thing which they needed. As we continue working through John's Gospel, which we're doing as we lead up to Easter... Today we're looking at 
Jesus' trial. We're going to sort of look at it two parts, both this week and next week. Looking at the big question of what is it that Jesus has done to so seriously upset the religious leaders? What are the accusations that they bring before him that results in him ending up being crucified on the cross? Then after next week on Good Friday, do note the service is at 8 o'clock, which is earlier than normal. Uh, We're looking at his crucifixion. Why did Jesus die? What does it mean for us? And then on Easter Sunday at 10 o'clock, normal time, uh, the resurrection. Is it something that can be believed? And what did it achieve? Some of you have been following along on social media may have noticed that I had written a blog article regarding the big question that people ask around Easter. Is there anything outside of the Bible to verify the historicity of Jesus' death and resurrection? I was going to put that up yesterday and I decided to hold it off until tomorrow for the very reason that I didn't want people to think it was an April Fool's joke. And I didn't want to do it today in case someone in the Northern Hemisphere thought it was an April Fool's joke. So that will get put up tomorrow if you're interested in looking at that type of material. But last week we looked at Jesus being arrested as Ray brought the message. But in that whole process we saw that even in his arrest, God is sovereign over all things. Now when the, when the Roman officials come to arrest Jesus, he says, who are you seeking? Pretty much he basically offers himself up. Who are you looking for? I'm the one you're looking for. Even the exact timing that Jesus would be crucified had been predetermined by God who was always in control and who always works about his good purposes. When you look throughout the Gospels, you see many attempts to arrest and have Jesus killed, but they never eventuate. One such example is in John chapter 7. When Jesus is speaking, he says, I know him, for I've come from him, and he has sent me. Then it says, so they were seeking to arrest him, But no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. So the reason why it says they wanted to arrest him, but the reason why it says they couldn't and didn't, the hour had not come. God had appointed a time when Christ would be handed over, delivered, where he'd bear the the penalty for sins of mankind. But that time was not the time. People do not decide when God's plan take place. Today our structures we're looking at things in this chapter we're looking at in two different ways firstly in verses 28 to 32 the question of what exactly has jesus done wrong what are the claims what's the accusation and secondly the larger section from verses 33 to 40 jesus being questioned about whether or not he's a king is jesus a king and what type of king does he reveal himself to be so firstly what has jesus actually done wrong Now, in John's Gospel, we saw last week, we see a little bit of interaction at the house of Caiaphas, but we don't see much in the way of details of him being questioned and being placed under trial. We do see these details in Matthew, Mark and Luke. And just because it gives us a bit of insight as to the mindset of the religious leaders as they're taking Jesus from there to Pilate, we'll just have a quick look at what transpired in Luke's Gospel in chapter 22. When the day came, the assembly of elders of people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council and they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you won't believe me. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. 
So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said, You say that I am. Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. So in this trial, they said to him, Are you the Christ? Now remember, Christ is not Jesus' last name. It is a title meaning the anointed king, the Messiah, the one whom God had promised who would deliver his people. Now on the surface, it looks like Jesus hasn't answered that question. Like he says, I'm not going to answer you and if I did ask you a question, you're not going to give me an answer. But what he does do is he says there in verse 69, from now on the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And in doing so, he alludes to two very significant messianic texts in the Old Testament. That title, Son of Man, comes from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 to 14, where it speaks of the Son of Man who comes to the ancients of days and is giving an everlasting kingdom. But also picks up on one of the most quoted part of the Psalms, Psalm 110, verse 1, when David says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. So essentially the religious leaders have very clearly heard him say that these messianic promises, he's saying, I am the one who is the fulfilment of those promises. As you see in their conclusion then, what else do we need? We've heard it from his own lips. So our reading says that they took him from Caiaphas' house to the governor's headquarters. Now Pilate wasn't normally stationed in Jerusalem But whenever there was a major religious festival, he would take up residence there in order to keep an eye on things, to make sure that tensions between the Jews and the Roman authorities didn't get out of control. It's presumed that he was probably at Antonia's fortress. That's not a real picture. That is a a picture of a model of it. Either that or there's an absolutely massive giant photographer standing behind it. But what it does say, it says, early in the morning they came to Pilate which gives us some sense of the urgency which they had early in the morning. They want to get this sorted out. They want a trial to happen. But what's also interesting is this Greek word that is used to describe early in the morning was used by the Romans to describe the fourth watch in the night, which was the period of time traditionally, by our reckoning, by between about 3am and 6am. 6, 6 Apart from that, it seems interesting to think who'd bother to do something at that time of the day. Jewish law actually prohibited legal hearings, particularly ones that resulted in a death sentence, before the sun came up. So if there wasn't a suggestion this happened before then, then we see that they are so keen to secure Jesus' death that they would even violate their own rules. But we don't know whether there is that intention to suggest it was during that time frame or if it's just a simple way of saying very early in the morning this was a priority, they wanted to get get this sorted as soon as possible. But one thing you see in Jesus' interactions with the religious leaders throughout the Gospels, they always want to seem like they are high and mighty, that like they're religious. And this is no exception. We see as they go to the emperor's headquarters, they do not go into the building says, lest they defile themselves. Now, the reason is, according to their their Jewish laws, if they enter the house of a Gentile, they are deemed to be ritually unclean for a period of seven days. And it says they don't want to defile themselves because they want to be involved in the Passover. And if they're defiled, they can't be involved. Now, this verse confuses many people because they think, hang on. In the other Gospels, we seem to appear to see Jesus having a Passover meal with the disciples Yet this event is occurring afterwards. 
Have we got something wrong in the Bible? Is this one of the errors that proves the Bible completely falls apart? What is likely a reference to is the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which was a period of a whole week in which Passover fell as part of that week. Now, I know some people, if I just left it at that, you'd say, oh, yeah, here's another pastor saying, just redefining something the Bible says just so it doesn't look like there's any difference between the two things. However, if the Bible makes the same connection between the two, then it's quite okay. And it does so in Luke 22. It says, Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread, remember that was a one-week feast, drew near, which is called the Passover. So even from a biblical standpoint, you could use those terms interchangeably. So there isn't an issue in that sense. So you don't need to throw out your Bible or get that, um, what was the comical thing for the good book company there, uh, thing they put forward for April Fool's Day was the, what they call the Contemporary Life Bible, which perforations where you could tear out pages you didn't like. I actually tried to click through the links to see if you could buy it, but there was, there was no page. Surprise, surprise. Now, Pilate's role was to maintain the, the Roman rule, but also keep peace to make sure things didn't get out of hand. So he accommodates their request uh, for him to come and meet with them outside. Now, Pilate's pretty well aware that they want to seek a legal hearing. I mean, the very fact that Roman guards, soldiers have been dispatched to arrest Jesus, then clearly they're expecting he's going to come back and want to bring charges against him. And in verse 29, he asks a pretty fair questions when it comes to having a trial. What is the accusation against this man? You don't have to watch Judge Judy too many episodes to realise that it actually needs to be an accusation for a trial to take place. And this seems to have caught the religious leaders off hand, as though they weren't prepared for such a question. I think some of them almost presumed upon the fact that if Pilate was willing to let Roman soldiers go and arrest Jesus, that a verdict was pretty much a done deal. Because if you look at their answer, they just say, if he hadn't done anything evil, we wouldn't have given him to you, would we? Here they, what's the accusation? He's a bad guy. We don't like him. He does naughty things. That's very specific. Now, their inability to articulate an accusation, yet they've brought him to Pilate, tells us one thing. What they were pursuing wasn't specifically a trial, but an outcome. Their intention was not to put him on trial and let's see how this legally pans out. The intention was always an outcome, which would be Jesus' crucifixion on a Roman cross. I think Pilate picks up on the fact that they didn't have much substance to their accusation because he turns back and says, why don't you judge them by your own law? Now, if you can't give me something that is actually a violation of Roman rule, you sort it out. It's kind of like if I drag someone down to the Toowoomba police station and say, excuse me, officer, this young man is not a Christian. He's not trusting in the saving death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Yet he had communion. Imagine the response you get down to the police station for that. They'd be kind of like, so this young fella ate some grape juice and some bread you bought from Woolies in your building and you want me to do something about it, do you? You sort it out, they'd say. Actually, they'd probably say all sorts of colourful things. When I said they were seeking a desired outcome, in verses 31 to 32, that becomes quite clear. Again, that's not supposed to be a line through it, it's supposed to be an underline. The Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. So when 
He says, you sort it out. You deal with it according to your law. You can tell what their result, what they wanted to achieve. He says, we can't kill someone. And also, this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So that response in these verses tells us two things, not only about the motive of the the religious leaders, but it also tells you something about God and his plan. Firstly, it tells us that they came to Pilate with the sole intention of achieving a death sentence. But it's interesting wording when they said, it is not lawful for us to put someone to death. Particularly when you read through the Gospels, there are two occasions when they've picked up stones to stone Jesus to kill him. So it appears that whether or not there's much, there is actually speculation as to whether or not they had permission to hand out a death sentence. Regardless of whether or not they were allowed to or not, it appeared that when they wanted to, they did it anyway. You get over to Acts, Stephen was stoned to death. So if they wanted to, they can do. So effectively, they're not just saying that we can't kill someone, but we want you to do it because you do it a really nasty, cruel way. And we want that, want it to happen that way. So the crucifixion was always the Jewish leader's plan. But guess what? Even before that, it was God's plan. It says this was to fulfill what Jesus had spoken about, the kind of death he was going to die. It was no surprise to Jesus that he ended up on a cross. John 3.14, he picks up on the the analogy from uh, Numbers chapter 16 And as Moses was lifted up in the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So remember that back in number 16, when there was these poisonous snakes sent out amongst the people and they were bitten, and if they were bitten, they would surely die. But if they came to this bronze serpent up on a pole that God told Moses to put up, and they looked upon that, they would live. And Jesus uses that as an analogy to say, same way, I will be look up. Whoever looks upon me, whoever's trust is upon what I do on this cross, so too they will live. John eight twenty eight. Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. John twelve thirty two thirty three. And when I am lifted up from the earth, and will draw all people to myself, he said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. So no surprises here. This is the plan of God. Yet God is even using the evil intentions of men to carry out and achieve his purposes. From the Jewish leader's perspective, they think we have nailed an absolute winner here. If we can get him crucified on a Roman cross, he'd be so disgraced, he'd be wiped out, we can forget him completely. Yet from God's perspective, this is the ultimate plan. The ultimate plan of God to achieve salvation to demonstrate and validate that Jesus was everything he said that he was, to secure salvation and to demonstrate his victory over sin and death. But it also becomes the mean by which all mankind, including the Jewish leaders, would be judged. Now at some point, whether it's here or other times, Pilate's heard the word that Jesus has claimed to be a king of the Jews. And that's our second section, verses 33 to 40. Is Jesus a king? To give you a little bit of background, Tiberius was the Roman emperor at the time, and he was a bit of a psycho. He was also particularly paranoid. 
He was always worried that someone was going to rise up and oppose him and take over his leadership. So if anyone showed the slightest inkling that they might want to take over a position of power or might try to rise up against the Roman Empire, he's like, kill him. Now, Pilate, who served underneath Tiberius, was probably thinking about this in two different ways. In asking him, are you a king? If he says yes, then Tiberius is going to be happy that I kill him. The Jews are going to be happy that I kill him. Win-win. But Jesus doesn't answer the question at first. At first he says, did you reach this conclusion? Or has someone else told you this? Has someone else given you this idea? Now it appears on the surface that the accusation of Jesus being king of the Jews didn't quite compute to Pilate. Like his response shows that he's not really interested in what Jesus had to say. He says, what, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? When he says, am I a Jew, he's like, what do I care about Jewish stuff? But what doesn't seem to make sense to him is if he is claimed to be king of the Jews, why do the Jews want him dead? It's not usually something that makes sense. But what does make sense to Pilate is like, what have you done? They're not going to hand you over unless you've done something to stir them up. As you know, I used to do voluntary work in a prison down in Victoria, sort of a chaplaincy sort of stuff. And whenever there was attacks inside a prison, it was usually the person who got attacked who got shipped off to another prison. And you think, that's a bit unfair. First they get glass across the face and then they get taken somewhere else. That's because in the prison system, you do not job or tell on someone else. It's just, it's just against the whole ethos of how things work there. So they work on the presumption, if someone did something to you, you probably did something, so get you out, you're the troublemaker. And that's what's going on here. Pilate is convinced if they've handed Jesus over, you've done something, what have you done? Why are they so upset about you? Now he doesn't quite directly answer that question, but he does return to the concept of kingship saying, my kingdom's not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. I think he's answered the question, hasn't he? The first one. Three times I've underlined, just to make it all nice and clear, he says, my kingdom. And if you need to make the connection, if you are saying that you have a kingdom, you're a king. But also twice he states, that his kingdom is not of this world or it's not from this world. An important thing he needs to state to make sure that Pilate does not think that Jesus being a king is in any way in opposition or is going to be a threat to Rome. Also, he says, take a look at my followers. You know, if I was really trying to start up some opposition, if I was going to have a big kingdom here on earth, aren't I going to raise an army? I mean, apart from stupid Peter who likes to cut your mate's ears off, doesn't really look like that's what I'm doing, does it? But Pilate picks up on the kingdom language. Aha. So you are a king. That puts Jesus in a difficult position, doesn't it? To be directly at so you are. If he says yes, Pilate most likely is going to presume a definition of a king very different than what Jesus is and probably presume that, the, that he is a threat to the rule of Rome. But then on the other hand, if Jesus says no, then he's denying who essentially he is as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. 
Unfortunately, the NIV basically has Jesus saying, yep, you got it right. Which is not the way the Greek words it. The ESV takes it a bit more literally saying, you say that I am king. Which is neither an admission, nor is it a denial, but saying, that's what you said. So while he doesn't make that particularly clear, one thing he does make clear is his purpose. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Jesus said, I came to bear witness to the truth, which includes his kingdom. Both John the Baptist and Jesus' first words were, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. But Jesus bore witness to some very important truths and particularly the most important truth about who we really are and who God really is. One such example is in John 3.36. He says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. He says everyone's in two camps. The natural state, the second one, he says, you are under God's wrath. He says, if you don't do something, you remain under his wrath. But whoever believes or trusts in the Son has eternal life. Now, it's not popular to hear. It's a little bit like getting a, a medical diagnosis. You don't necessarily like hearing you've got something that could be potentially fatal. But when you're also in the same phrase, get the expression, but here is the cure, then you see it to be the good news that it is. Jesus also bore witness to the truth in John 14, 6. I'm the way, the truth and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And not only is he the way, but this new life is a guarantee and it begins from the moment you trust in Jesus. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has, present tense, eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. So Jesus did indeed bear witness to truth and he did so very directly. But one of the things he says, he says, everyone who is of the truth listens to me. Which in one sense suggests that those religious leaders standing outside aren't of the truth. But potentially he's also putting forward a bit of a challenge to Pilate too, saying, what are you going to do with what I've spoken to you? Now Pilate's very 2017 kind of guy and gives the answer, what is truth? Now, I don't know if that's just because he had no idea what Jesus was talking about or if he was just like the 2017 person who says, no such thing as absolute definite truth. But whatever he thought, there's one thing that he is convinced of is that Jesus is not a threat to Rome. Because we read there in the following verse, verse 38, after he said this, he went outside to the Jews and says, I find no guilt in him. It's not looking real good, is it? Jesus said how he's going to die on a cross. So far, the the religious leaders bring him to, to Pilate. Pilate says, what's his accusation? We don't like him. Pilate has a chat to him, comes out and says, I don't find him guilty. How's this going to work out that Jesus dies on the cross when the person who has the authority to have him crucified says, I find no guilt in him. And as we'll see next week, he says that another two times. Throughout the whole events of the gospel, we see the sovereignty of God. Despite the odds thinking this isn't going to work because the guy who needs to do it won't do it, God always achieves his purposes. Now Pilate thinks 
Now he wants to release him because he's nothing guilty. He thinks, I've got an escape clause. I know how I'm getting out of this. He says, but you've got a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? He's like, winner, winner, chicken dinner. Here I get to release him, which is what I've decided I want to do. But also, if I do it by invoking this custom of releasing a prisoner, I am saying that this guy is guilty, which hopefully that will satisfy them. But at the same time, I get to send him out. In Mark's gospel, it actually describes that it was the crowds who asked him to to carry out this custom to, to release a prisoner. And one thing I noticed as I was reading through things this week is that in the back of my mind, I always thought it was that Pilate says, who do you want, Jesus or Barabbas? That's not what happens in any of the Gospels. Where there is anything description given in John, Matthew and Mark, the suggestion to have Barabbas released is not because Pilate put forward as an option, but the people requested him as being the option. And we don't know why they specifically asked for him. I would have two possible ideas. One for contempt against Jesus. To, to think of someone saying, this guy has done some pretty horrific stuff. We want to send the message that we would rather have him than this so-called claimant to be king of the Jews. Or on the other hand, it could all be out of contempt for Rome and Pilate. Because it says in other parts of the Gospels that he was an insurrectionist. He was a, a potentially rose up against the Romans. And then I think, ha how about this? We'll get this guy back out again. These are the descriptions we have, which says a robber here in, in John, in Matthew, it says he was a notorious prisoner. And Mark says he had committed murder in the insurrection. So if he was part of leading an uprising against Roman rule, the Jews actually might have held him in high esteem. They might have thought, legend, because they didn't like the Roman rule either. But whatever the reason is, and it's not my job to speculate what we don't get told about, one thing we do know, they happily traded the king of kings for a criminal. They said, we would happily have this guy and you can kill the king of kings. They demanded a sinner while rejecting the sin saviour. Now this might seem a little bit abhorrent to us. Here's Jesus, clearly innocent, hasn't done a thing wrong came into the world to save the world for the world's good. Yet there are people, and particularly even the religious leaders, who seem bent on inflicting the cruelest death known to man on him. And at the same time, happily insist on requesting the company of a sinner while rejecting the sin saviour. Things aren't much different today. Jesus said he came to bear witness to the truth. Just as much today, the concept that there is such thing as absolute truth is not popular, nor is the content of the truth popular. Because the content of the truth says that everyone is not okay. Everything's not all going to work out sweet for everyone. You can't just do whatever you like. You're not the ultimate authority in all things. The way Jesus described it, we looked previously, puts everyone in two different camps. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Now that's our natural state. We're told in, in Ephesians 2 that we were by nature children of wrath. Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is being revealed against all ungodliness. 
That's our default position. But whoever believes, whoever trusts in the Son who came to bear the price of our sin on that cross has eternal life. Because he took the punishment for our sin. Either you trust that Jesus has taken the punishment for you or you take the punishment yourself. In many ways it might seem convenient, easier to keep company with sin, at least for the time being. But there's coming a day, the scripture said, when everyone will stand before God and we'll either stand before God in the complete company of our sin and nothing else but our sin before a perfect and holy God or we will stand before him with confidence because we are told that through faith in Jesus Christ we are given the righteousness of God. That is the rightness according to God's standard is credited to us when we trust in Jesus' death and resurrection. We trust him as our Lord and King to whom we are loyal to, to whom we are committed to, his righteousness given to us. So that when we stand before him and this he's made available to all who would call upon him, we don't need to have the slightest concern of am I good enough? Because we think what he sees is the righteousness of Christ which will always be good enough. And as we look over things this Easter, both here and as, as the gospel is proclaimed around the world, people will be in one of these two camps and we pray that people will be convicted by the work of the Holy Spirit to see the wonderful good news that is offered, that while we were by nature children of wrath, Christ died for the ungodly to bring us to God. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we don't, don't deserve a single thing that you've done for us. If we received what we rightly deserved, none of us would still be alive. We fail you, we dishonour you on a regular basis. Even as Christians, we don't give you the honour that you, that you deserve all the time. Yet, Lord, not only have you forgiven us as though you've just overlooked things, you are a just God. The demands of your wrath against sin has been satisfied because it has been meted out on Jesus Christ. And at the same time, you also promise that all who trust in him receive not just forgiveness or a slate wiped clean, but the righteousness of Christ given to us. We thank you for the wonderful good news that it is. Lord, we pray that your truth might be declared. We pray that people would hear your truth as truth. We pray that people actually would feel bad about what the Bible says about the true state of humanity. But at the same time, that they would see the wonderful good news to see what you have done about it and that they would call upon the name of Jesus Christ. And they would see your death as not a, a dismal, disappointing end to a life but by the very means by which you are declared to be the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the one who has victory over sin and death, the one who has done all for our salvation, the one who rose from the dead, and the one who has promised us a very real and certain eternal hope with you. And we give you thanks for that. In Jesus' name, amen.